0: My name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Leticia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict.
1: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Rural Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crowe.
2: I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things.
1: Hello, my name is Liz Crow, and I'm Jesse Spur. And today we're going to talk about a part of the body that makes people a little bit squirmish at times. We are going to dig deep into the whole thing of five things we all need to know about the eye. And we're welcoming Brenda Fleming, who is an incredible registered nurse who's worked in ophthalmology on Metro North and Metro South over many years. Welcome, Brenda. Hi,
2: Brenda thank you so much for coming along to talk to us I wonder where you're going about that body part that makes everyone a bit (laughs) squeamish there but I can see now um so Brenda we'd love to get a little bit um, of background about who you are and uh, how you've got to this fairly unique part of clinical practice and what what that journey's been for you in your nursing career
0: I can start that I'm trained here, worked here, lived here for all my junior years as a student nurse and then as an RN. And at some stage when I became a registered nurse, I decided that um, ophthalmology was something that really took my fancy. I'm not quite sure what it was particularly. It was um, attached to Maxfax plastics and ENT as well, but eyes was what took my fancy.
1: And your career has taken you many places. Can you tell us some of the really interesting places you have worked?
0: Um, I chose to try and experience something beyond Australia and I decided I'd go to Hong Kong for a, six weeks was the decision. But I ended up being there close to two years just before the handover. I privately nursed a very rich Chinese gentleman in the Hong Kong Adventus Hospital and then worked with an Australian GP there do a vaccination clinic and an endocrine clinic, which was exciting. But then it was a bit much. Hong Kong was a lot of fun, but very long hours, 12-hour shifts. So I decided to go somewhere quieter. So I ended up in the Mekong Delta in Vietnam, working on a um, construction site as a, a nurse on my own, you know, five hours south of Ho Chi Minh City.
2: Wow. One of the things I really picked up in our pre-chat as well is that there's not been a lot of confined boundaries about how to have a career in nursing for you. You're sort of saying at the moment you're working across two health service areas with Metro North and Metro South, have kept doing some emergency nursing practice, some different areas at once, and not just been, I'm going one place and I'm just going to stay there or progress through the normal conveyor belt of what progression looks like in nursing.
0: The beauty of nursing when I started was you were given exposure to Every specialty that existed, you were given five-week rotations, working full-time. You got to see every specialty. You got to learn which ones you liked and you didn't like. I did a lot of them for nearly eight years before I went overseas. So I felt, you know, I was 27 or something. I was bulletproof and that I knew enough to be able to do stuff. And I proved that I could. Being a nurse and an Australian nurse overseas is very highly regarded. We have uh, a work ethic that seems to be demonstrated by our behaviour. And I managed to show that, and people were happy to have me work for them. So, yeah.
1: And I guess um, I opened this up by saying, you know, people are squeamish about the eye. I think everyone, you know, we all get terrified of something happening to our eyes. And I've got to be honest, I met Brenda after I got two abscesses in my eye, and I was so impressed with the care that I got from Brenda and the crew in the ophthalmology unit upstairs, which prompted me to ask her to come today. Brenda, we want you to give us our five things. And your first one, I I just thought this was so clever. Your number one was eyes are important for independence. Can you tell us what you mean by that, please?
0: I was thinking from the clinical reasons for why it's important. As registered nurses, anyone over the age of 65 is considered a falls risk. Having more than four medications also makes them a falls risk. So you can be any age and have troubles staying upright. If your vision is part, it's good to make sure that you set up an environment for someone that allows them to be independent in their area. And also people who haven't seen for their whole life or have been blind or have low vision for a long period of time actually know how to be independent and you need to allow them to be able to demonstrate to you what they know and what they don't know about getting around in a new environment. So
1: when you lose part of your eyesight, even if it's for the short or long term, how much does it kind of affect your balance or how you see and operate the world? Does it take a while to get your, you, know, to get used to?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You, you lose your sense of depth perception and you lose your peripheral vision. Being mindful that if you're pouring a cup of tea or you're taking a step up or down or around something, you may not have the right perception of where things are so being cautious or when you describe to someone where something is you have to be mindful or approaching someone from the side that they're blind you will startle them
2: yeah right the depth perception factor around vision um, has certainly become more attended to in hospital design than I think it used to be yeah. um, one of the things that in our ICU choices on what flooring to use yeah. and consideration being given to differentiating between flooring and wall colour, like simple, simple stuff that seems to have such face validity now, but something that we used to get wrong a lot of the time in design aiding depth perception. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Going from the normal floor into a bathroom, you will find people will actually try and step because they think that there is a change because the floor colour has changed. But you need to be reassuring or say to them, you're going into the bathroom now, you might see that it's a different colour, but there isn't a step there. People who are blind or haven't seen for a while do like to be treated in a manner that acknowledges that they've gone beyond having something that could be seen as a disability to some people but actually hasn't bothered them or they have incorporated into their life. If someone comes into the ward and they can't see particularly but they've walked in with their cane or, or have come in with their family, it's really important to try and develop a rapport with them to find out where would you like me to put your buzzer so that you know where it is so that when you need it, that you'll be able to reach out for it when it's required. Talking about, would you like me to tell you where the toilet and the shower are, or do you need me to walk you to it? You need to give them the option to communicate with you which part of their day-to-day activities they actually require your assistance, and acknowledge that there might be some things that they'll absolutely be able to do for themselves, that, and, but that's different to someone who's lost their vision more recently.
2: I really like picking up on the generalizable points beyond just the, the vision. But the thing that sort of comes through there is with that change over time with chronic disease as opposed to the acute disease is the adaptation factor. And often we take away people's ability to deploy all their adaptive things that they've got working for them in real life outside of hospital when they come in. So I love that of actually just getting into those questions of going... What do you do to get around these sorts of things? Usually, how can we kind of set up the environment here so it's as close and familiar to how you'd usually use the environment at home?
0: And your cues will be that they will actively answer immediately. They'll say, yes, actually, I can do this, this and that, but what I will need you to do is this and allow them to be a part of their delivery of care to them.
1: Yeah. So number two is common eye diseases you may see in a hospital admission. Um, can you just give us an idea Brenda of the sorts of things we will commonly see in a hospital
0: most eye conditions that you'll end up seeing in hospital are usually acute presentations of eye infections that have come from chronic contact lens wearing. We have lots of people who go out picking fruit and don't think about washing their hands with tank water and then putting their contact lens back in or leaving their contact lens in their eye for prolonged periods of time and not recognising that a sore, irritated eye one day when you're picking fruit or whatever can become an infected eye that ends up needing hospitalisation and multiple eye drops that are given every hour for sometimes weeks.
2: That sounds like torture and we'll kind of get into the eye drop thing yeah. as an administrative thing as yep. nurses that we might be doing, whether it's for the principal reason that that patient's in hospital or it's just something that they're needing as part of their care when they're in for something totally different. Yep. So that's really interesting. So an acute sort of infective process, big common one would be that- yep.
0: um, you can have Uh, We have a penetrating eye conditions, people that have had worker-related injuries where they've received metal frag- fragments or occhi straps that have banged them in the eye. Usually that doesn't uh, rupture the globe per se, but it does cause bleeding at the front of the eye. That needs a person to be on rest in bed with toilet privileges, and they and it's usually young people. So it's very important that if it's rest in bed, that the instruction that you give reminds the person that they have an injury where bleeding may continue if they don't rest Mm. And recovery from the eye and retention of vision and things can be affected by their behaviours. <laughs> and eye drop administration is part of that as well.
2: So the rest in bed and rest with toilet privileges, obviously they have to have, but the rest in bed component is that due to the exacerbation of bleeding causing uh, raised intraocular pressure
0: and loss of sight from that? You can get raised intraocular pressure because it's not normal to have blood um, in the front of your eye. Um, You can also damage the eye with the impact so the eye is actually inflamed it needs time to settle down and the full mechanisms of the how and the why is a bit too complex to really go into. But uh, resting so that the small vessels in the eye aren't triggered by bending over so that the eye can actually settle down and heal.
2: Mm. So that's a a really quick speed date of the acute stuff that we might see. So chronic eye disease that's, that I guess is the most prevalent that you see and we uh, may be likely to accompany patients with other admissions that we get?
0: A lot of people because of diabetes, there's chronic diabetic eye disease, that's associated a lot with people with renal conditions, vascular patients because it is a neuropathy of the back of the eye. You have a creation of very small vessels that are growing unnecessarily in the back of the eye but not actually supplying blood correctly. Those people sometimes need laser, they sometimes need intravitreal injections actually into the eye. We do a lot of that in the eye clinic. People I don't think realise how bad diabetic eye disease is in the community. The same with macular degeneration, they both go hand in hand with a lot of our community will have signs and symptoms of both of those.
2: So I guess in, to, like anything, understanding what the general prevalence of this sort of stuff is in the broader community, and that we're already seeing a population that's generally sick anyway, yeah, yeah. so the prevalence is going to be higher in the hospitalised community, that it's quite likely that a lot of our patients will carry these one form of these chronic eye diseases.
0: Look, people who are overweight and hypertensive usually run the risk of having a type 2 diabetes. People can spend a lot of their young years not living well and then being confronted with a condition that does mean that they have diabetes, can't fully comprehend the damage that they will do to their eye. It's unfortunate for people with type 1 diabetes. There's nothing they can do about having type 1 diabetes, but they can with good education can keep their HbA1c at a level that keeps the disease process at bay. It's really sad seeing people in their 20s who have next to no vision at all, who are finally, especially with males, waking up one day and realising that if they do things right, they've now got relationships, they've got kids and they can't see. They're bordering on being blind and on disability pension because they haven't looked after their eyes and it's quite sad.
2: So I I suppose picking up on the impact that that can have for us as nurses, probably a lot more consideration on assessment of eyes in patients that we get that red flag of higher, high risks for these chronic diseases. So actually thinking this is both an opportunity to have an educational conversation, pick up some things early in the progression of an eye disease that this person's not here for, but th- this is an opportunity, but also a possibility to avoid some hospital complications with undiagnosed or pre-diagnosis eye disease.
0: The thing about eyes is a lot of conditions aren't uh, life-threatening and won't come into the picture of if someone's unwell in hospital a sight threatening condition if it's not going to be changing the course of a person's admission we wouldn't necessarily look at someone's eye because we know they have diabetes but certainly the education for someone saying if you have a Medicare card every two years you can go to an optometrist and have your eye looked at if you have diabetes my understanding is you actually can be seen every six months or at least once a year Encourage people to have self-care and a plan for looking out for conditions that they might be susceptible to and being mindful of.
1: One thing that's really striking me in these podcasts is just what a vital role nurses play in this holistic care of humans and the education that can be provided around something as important as your vision.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think people who are in hospital appreciate that nurses are are the ones who are seen by the patient consistently. Every eight hours, there'll be a different person, but it will be predominantly the nurse that is there. So it is a great responsibility that we have that the discussions that we have with people are going to be useful to them for ongoing life-changing decisions, health teaching. And you can incorporate it into your conversation without actually teaching them a lesson. You can converse just matter-of-factly about things, give them life hacks on things, that they will probably retain because they hopefully will remember a conversation with you yeah terrific
1: so our number three Brenda is eye care and administrative drops and I'm guessing because you've actually put administrative drops as a as a third point it's really important
0: it, it is super important I'm um, not just because I'm in ophthalmology and I love drops as a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, If people are prescribed drops, there is an absolute reason why they're prescribed and the regime that you're given is specific to the condition that is been diagnosed or is suspected. And if you don't administer the drops as prescribed, we can't see the outcome that we expect or we think might happen and we can't make decisions well if the um, regime hasn't been followed. An example of that is people who have come in with glaucoma or raised intraocular pressure. We sometimes have difficulties getting the pressure down um, in people's eyes and there's medication called Diamox that they have to take That needs to be given, but also the drops need to be given on time to make sure that the pressure does come down in the eye so that we can then give treatment like laser and things like that and start educating the person about the necessity for giving drops on time and the reasons for giving them for glaucoma. An example for infected eyes, we can't have an eye get better the way we possibly expect it's going to be if the drops aren't given on time.
1: And so some of the um, new grad nurses, you know, I asked them some questions they might have about the eye. And one of them was, do you wake, you know, if it says drops every two hours, but the person is so sound asleep, do you wake them? And if you do, how do you do that in a way that isn't so disruptive to their sleep that they then can't rest?
0: Sometimes the drops are actually half hourly. so and that's uh, for 24 hours for up to 72 hours. So you justifiably have to prepare the person from the start. We start in the clinic by having conversations with the people saying, you have an infection in your eye. We've sent the swabs away to try and get a result. It'll be 48 hours before we really know what's growing there. So you'll be started on a vast array of drops that are antifungal and antibacterial and lubricant drops. We have to put all of them into your eyes to make sure that we're giving broad spectrum coverage until we find at what actually is wrong with the eye. So the expectation that we will have is that we will be waking you or putting drops in your eyes every half hour or every hour. It's not going to be comfortable and you're not going to enjoy it, but we do have to do it. We're going to hopefully aim in the wards to have the lights either on a nightlight that's on in a dimly lit room or you have your torch that goes into the room. Sometimes people can have an agreement that you just can put the drop in without actually waking them up and disturbing them. Of course, you have to do your five five checks, all of those things to make sure that the uh, the drug is the correct drug and it's the correct person that you're giving it to. So hopefully they've got an armband that you can do the identifying things that are required but you do have to say to them for the next two or three days you're probably not going to get much sleep but we're going to make sure that we do it with the least interference to your sleep as possible. So you have to reach an agreement with the person, but usually they're that exhausted, but you just persist and quietly, gently put the drop in the person's eye.
1: Now, another question was, when you're putting eye drops in, is there an optimal place to put it in the eye? Like, is there a trick to it?
0: Um, where, like when you're putting in a drop, what does that actually look like from eye, an expert?
2: Eye drop life hacks.
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm left-handed so whenever I have to demonstrate to students it looks weird to them because most of them are right-handed anyway but I always say after you've washed your hands if it's an infected eye wash your hands put your gloves on pull down the bottom part of the eye so that you create the little pouch with the conjunctiva at the bottom and you pop the drop just into the pouch there just in the middle down there and ask them just to gently close their eye. If a person is um, pregnant you would ask them to put uh, pressure just here on the on the nasal bone so that they don't have the drug go into their system because it's only a topical administration. And that's usually what we suggest to some people when they're pregnant so that they don't feel that it's going to affect their child.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know that. I, I've had to put drops in my kids' eyes before for, for conjunctivitis, whatever. And I just sort of drop it in the middle, but you actually pull the, the lid, you, bottom lip down and pop it in there.
0: If you drop it directly onto the cornea, um, it can give you a bit of a shock to drop it straight onto the eye because you can see it coming. And that's pretty distressing for most people. And um, depending on how high you drop it, the person can actually feel it striking the eye. Mm. So you're wanting without touching the end of the bottle on the eye, is just dropping it into the little pouch that you form down the bottom is um, the ideal way to pop a drop in. There you
1: go. That's also a big parenting tip, I think.
2: It is. (laughs) That's why we said life hacks rather than just (laughs) therapy.
1: So number four is the importance of supportive and comfort care of the eye. Can you talk us through what that means, please, Brenda?
0: People who are in the acute phase of care like in intensive care who are paralysed and sedated they don't have their blink reflex and it's important that the eye does close properly or if it doesn't close properly that lubricants and ointments are applied to ensure the preservation of the surface of the eye from personal experience I've had my eyes not closed properly when I was unwell in hospital and I have permanent scarring to my eyes I can see okay but if it if my eyes would open just that little bit more or I would have long-term problems with my vision and needing lubricants into the future just to protect the scarring that's getting in the way of me seeing correctly. So that would be something that's important for nurses to recognise and understand, even though it's not a medication per se, it is absolutely um, supportive therapy that is imperative that you do to preserve because most people who are in ICU and have a whole life ahead of them and to think that you can cause permanent damage to someone by not putting a drop in because it doesn't seem as valuable as other medications to give on time would be the wrong way to think or an accidental way to think you wouldn't be doing it on purpose and you're advocating for the patient because they can't say well I haven't been blinking much for the last 24 hours or the last six weeks that I've been paralysed and sedated and my eye seems to hurt I can't explain why they've they're hurting i they go well I can explain you didn't have your eyes shut. It, sometimes it can happen regardless of the treatment, but you need to be assured that you did everything in your power to make sure that the eyes were lubricated or closed appropriately when necessary.
2: When we're talking about options, I suppose, is the other obvious, <laughs> hopefully obvious question of this, is the a gel like ointment sort of lubricant versus an eye drop lubricant. What, what's your decision-making frameworks around what's best to lubricate an eye with?
0: When it comes to patient safety, for people who need lubricants and they are prescribed and they are independent with their cares and mobilising, you should be using lubricating drops because they're less likely to give them incredibly blurry eyes. Um, the Chlorsig or chloramphenicol drops that, uh, ointment that you put in, or the genteel ointments you put in, it's like getting a handful of Vaseline and slapping across your windscreen of your car. There's no way that you can do enough blinking to be able to see clearly. So a person becomes a greater falls risk with that kind of administration. Some eyes are in a state where we do have to prescribe ointments, and you have to be mindful to the person and to their environment that they won't see as well because of the treatment. That that they have in their eye. One of the questions again we were asked by
1: new grads is what do you do around end of life care? So someone's imminently dying, their eyesight's not going to be a long term issue. How much care do we still pay to the eye?
0: Look there's an absolute duty of care that you deliver. All cares where required right up until the point of death. Certainly I, I did palliative care for about 10 years in Metro South and eye care and mouth care was so important right up until the point of death, there's nothing worse than going into a room and seeing someone lying with their eyes half, half open and the cornea absolutely dry to the point of being cloudy. Yes, the person isn't looking around particularly, but they have any level of awareness of what's going on and the pump that they're receiving their narcotics is keeping them in a state of euphoria and comfort doesn't mean they should be lying there blinking with a dry eye. And family... the forefront for a lot of the reasons why, well, not the reasons why you do things. Yes, the person deserves to have eye drops in their eyes, but their memory of their relative will stick in their mind forever. If they come in and their um, mum or dad or relative has uh, very dry corneas and cracked lips, they will remember that that's what they saw the last time they saw their relative. And I just don't think that's something that anyone should ever have to experience. And I it's think, really good nursing care.
2: Yeah, and I think those, those types of cares, particularly at end-of-life care, where we're trying to give the patient who back to their family, like yeah. re, rehumanize them rather than all yeah. of the dehumanising that's happened with the acute management in a lot of these diseases. Yeah. i found eye cares and mouth cares, um, pending what the family wants to get involved in, p- can be a really great way – for them to feel like they're caring still for that person absolutely. that we've taken a lot over of?
0: Yeah, absolutely. People don't know what to do. Um, regardless of the expectation that someone is going to die, you do need to give direction to someone what's okay to participate in. You know that the, the trajectory is that the person is going to die, but in the time frame that you're leading up to it, Absolutely, sitting and washing, sitting, putting moisturiser on their hands, getting a warm face washer and giving their face a wash, um, instructing them how to safely put in eye drops, how to put something on their lips give them the comb and get them to comb their hair you know it's nice if we've done that before the person comes into the room because it gives them a sense of relief that the person is okay that they're being looked after when they're not in the room.
1: Mm, And I always think you know family and loved ones are the long-term survivors. And so if we can do as much as we can to assure them that they had a peaceful and comfortable death, then that's a gift in itself, isn't it?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So we're up to your final um, point. So your number five is the importance of rest and sleep for the recovery of the eye.
0: I always believe we do our best healing when we're asleep. Um, People who come into hospital aren't used to the culture of the hospital and it's okay for us as nurses to direct them as to how they can get the best out of their healing and their time in hospital. That involves speaking to the family as well. During the day, it's absolutely fine, especially if someone's on hourly eye drops, that you... Had the family around. Sometimes they like to practice or involve themselves with the administration if it is safe because people do go home on second hourly eye drops. We don't like to keep people in hospital forever if we can get away with it, but we have to be assured that the regime continues. But saying to the family with someone who is in the acute phase of a really badly infected eye is how about you go home, get yourself something to eat, have a sleep, go to the shops, have a moment where you can refresh yourself and allow your relative time to rest and not be entertaining you because sometimes relatives feel that they need to speak all the time when people are there because people have spent the time coming to the hospital to see them. You need to give relatives the right and understanding to know that they can leave and it is appropriate and it is appropriate for people to have naps. I highly encourage people, unless it's not possible, that they be at home at night so that we can deliver the care to the person quietly in a dimly lit room or in a proper darkened room so the person can sleep and their eyes can be shut because your eyes have their own nutritional, the tears that are delivered and the lubricants that come just naturally need to work as well. And that happens during sleep or undisturbed sleep as much as possible.
2: And I suppose it's really important point to kind of hammer home. And we recorded with um, Margaret Kale from the Eat, Walk, Engage program this okay. morning. So I don't want to start a fight between us saying for delirium prevention to encourage day-night orientation and avoid sleep during the day. This is a different group that we're actually waking up potentially every half hour like pretty much doing CIA um, torture training too – this is a group that it may be appropriate for them to have naps during the day and trying to facilitate the environment to do that?
0: Well, it's important that they have their eyes closed because uh, usually when you have an infected eye, the surface of your eye, sunlight or any even artificial light can be quite painful to the eye and so you're inclined to have your eyes shut. If you have people visiting constantly, you may be inclined to try and be engaging and doesn't give your body the natural reason. To get better as well, rather than just with drugs.
1: So, if I've, if you've got something, because I remember acutely having these two abscesses in, in your eye, is it better to be lying flat? Like, does that take more pressure off the eye, or is it fine to be sitting up if you've got your kind of eye shut and?
0: inflammation around the eye actually is eased better if you are sitting up sometimes people who have cellulitis to the eye um it's an inflammation when you light because i try and try and explain to people if you're up around during the day and you're doing stuff and then you go to bed and have a lie down you wake up in the morning and your eye is swollen it's because your lymph and all your all the normal bodily processes are trying to work to take the infection or the inflammation away. So it's become warmer overnight and the and the swelling has become more apparent. Once you get up and start moving around and using the muscles of your eyes the blinking that will reduce the swelling again. So sometimes we suggest people with injuries or swelling to their face to be sleeping sitting up on a couple of pillows oh. or be mindful if you do lie flat which you can for most conditions that you will have swelling that you might not expect otherwise and once you get up and start continuing throughout the day that it will reduce. Again. The other
1: thing that we haven't talked about that you taught me at the time was the importance of a warm um, compress or a warm washer when you've got something going on for the eye. And...
0: Yeah. Um, and even if you don't have something going on with your eye, once you're over 65 years of age, your your skin doesn't produce as much collagen. And the same with the glands that you have in your eyelids don't work like they normally do. And sometimes our suggestion is uh, warm compresses and massage of the eyelids. Some people who are in aged care or who live alone and don't have supportive therapies or people coming to them will probably be helped in the shower and all their um, vital organs are are cleaned and whatever but they don't really get a good face wash and you can see around the eyelashes um, there's something that looks like dandruff that actually can be little mites that are on the on the eyelid I know (laughs) yeah wow if you give a warm face wash to someone and wash a wash around their eyes it helps with uh, it's like washing your hair you need to wash the hair on your eye eyelashes as well. But it's a good um, icebreaker when you're meeting someone for the first time um, in hospital. I'd still have part of my practice that if I haven't met someone or don't know someone and they're confined to bed or they can only go from bed to chair, that I bring them a warm face washer and start a discussion with them. Good morning. My name's Brenda. Can you just take this from me? It's a warm face washer. I need you to give your face a bit of a wash. Please concentrate around giving your eyes a good rub Mm. because I want you to be awake for the day. And you're not only seeing that their GCS is 15, that they can follow instruction, but they're also interacting with you and that you can make decisions and clinical decisions based on what they're demonstrating to you with the interaction
2: and they feel like they're on a business class flight and 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 it's
0: a nice (laughs) and it's a nice thing to do to someone i know i know wards are busy i think it i think they're terribly terribly busy but just because i work with eyes eye hygiene is important to me giving someone a warm face washer and asking them to give their eyes a bit of a wipe in the morning is just general it's just a nice thing to do
1: i i feel like we've learned so much today
2: yeah i excuse the pun but this is a big blind spot for me. <laughs> um, as someone that does a lot of eye care, I realised how superficial my knowledge base underpinning it was. So, and and I say was because I've been very much well educated. In oh, this well, I
1: hope, so I hope I've been helpful. Ahead. So let me see if I can summarise all of this. Um, I feel like every word we say now has the word eye in it. So I'm going to summarise um, <laughs> what we've said. So number one was how important your vision is for your overall independence and to be mindful if someone comes in um, and they've got their vision impaired to help them orientate them to the environment or if it's someone who's got long-term vision impairment to give them as much independence as, as they need and we find that out by asking. Number two was the common forms of eye disease and things like contact lenses and diabetes, how it can impact the eye and how we need to be aware of that because the prevalence is quite high. Number three was looking at therapies or supportive care and comfort care for people around the eyes. And that was including people on palliative care, um, which led us beautifully into number four, which is the protective care of the eye with lubrication and making sure that eyes are closed at all times. And number five, the importance of rest and sleep in eye recovery. Brenda, it has been a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much for what you do um, and thanks for today's podcast.
0: Thank you.
2: The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things.